I, I question whether I, I should uh, um, share this, this recount of uh, part of uh, my childhood with my, my mom and dad here today, but, but it's nothing embarrassing. Don't worry about that. But I can remember one point it's, uh, hearing uh, my mom encourage me that, that I did such a good job of vacuuming that she wanted me to do vacuuming and things. And of course, as us kids, I, I see this as a parent, you know, somehow it's like, oh, you want me to what? You know, <laughs> parents, you're like looking at them thinking, you know what, all I've done today, you know, get up from your cartoons and please go vacuum. But I can remember thinking, why did I do such a good job vacuuming? That was my mistake. expectations so often that we have with other people, that people have with us, get set by a person's ability, a person's performance, a person's what they are able to do. We have that in the term responsibility. If somebody has an ability to respond in the way that they should, we consider them to be responsible to respond. The sad situation uh, of, say, a family with an alcoholic parent is that, that even though there, there is the, a bit, there should be, they are response, they have the responsibility to care for, to take care of, to, to be there, still there is not the ability because of something that's in their life holding them back. We've all seen that, maybe even experienced it. The untrustworthiness, the unfortunate, the unfortunate expectation of disappointment. Understand that there's a reason why I share with that. It's because we are all drunk with sin in in our the in the way that we are born, in the way that we come into this world, in the way that we live without God opening up our eyes and beginning to change us and redeem us. We are all drunk with sin. We have the responsibility to respond to Him. We have the responsibility to worship Him, to acknowledge Him, to, to see Him for what He is. But even though we have the responsibility, the sin that we are born into takes away our ability to respond in the way that we should. Because of our being born in a sinful condition, every person is drunk with sin, unable to respond to the gospel without God's help, yet still responsible to do so, held accountable. Before we move into this idea of what does God expect from me, which is kind of an overarching question having to do with Romans 10, we need to review a little bit of where we've been in Romans. And here we are in Romans 9 through 11. And we're looking at this as the privilege of being the people of God. And we're taking implications from everything that is said about Israel and Israel's uh, long-term over the centuries relationship with God of being His covenant people. And their, and their need for His grace, their, their lack of response to His grace, and specifically to Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah. Taking implications from that for us as God's people, the church. 
Why is Romans, Romans talking about the lostness of the majority of God's Old Testament covenant people, Israel? Well, we're told way back at the beginning of Romans in 1, 16 through 17, that the gospel, it's the power of God for the salvation for anyone who believes. That in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. But if that's the case, if the gospel is the power for God for salvation, in light of Israel's present condition, where is the power of the gospel if they won't believe, especially if the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, who has seen the righteousness of God more than the people of Israel through what we know as their Old Testament centuries of experience with him? We're also told in Romans 8, 32 through 39, of how nothing can separate, nothing can come between us and the love of God for his children in Christ Jesus. Nothing that we go through, and it lists off all of these things, sickness or death or or persecution. Nothing that we go through means that he no longer loves us, confirming that, that grace covenant relationship with God that we have with him as his children, having received Christ as our Savior, a part of his body, the church. That nothing that we go through means that he no longer loves us and no longer sees us in his grace. But in light of Israel's living outside of their covenant relationship with God, how can I take God at his word regarding the fact that nothing that I go through means that I'm separated from his love? That's why Romans dives into Israel as a subject of Romans 9 through 11. The answers that we see to these questions in 9 through 11 begin in chapter 9, where basically we see that God's word hasn't failed. And this is explained by the sovereignty of God in salvation. You'll remember in in some way this bridge picture we've used to to be a picture of the doctrine of salvation for what we're told of in the Scriptures. We're told of our side and the, the huge responsibility that we have to respond to the truth, to hear the truth, to obey it, to see the love of God, to see the, the holy righteousness of God and how we do not meet it. And we're also told of the, the sovereign nature of God in the salvation of man. The other side of the bridge, if you will. But though we try to, with, with uh, many different doctrinal positions and, 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 and uh, estimations and things, we're, we're not really told of where those two sides meet. It's somewhat of a mystery. But we lear- we've learned in chapter 9 of the sovereignty of God. In salvation, in the series that we looked at, becoming God's people, the mercy and just, uh, the mercy of the just and sovereign God. The key verse in that, uh, some of those key verses were like verse six, where the question is asked in opening up this issue of what about Israel. The question was asked, 
or the statement is made, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And we were given that explanation, and I won't go back into explaining it again, don't worry. And in verses 11 through 12, speaking of God's specific choosing of one brother over another in order to, to, uh, to decide which of the sons of Isaac were going to, was God's covenant promise going to pass down through, God himself chose, not by the cultural expectations of that day, of maybe it would be the older one. It says in verses 11 through 12, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And so, again, we saw in Romans 9 the side of the doctrine of salvation, the side of the doctrine of being God's privileged people, his sovereign work in it. And as summarized best in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And while chapter 9 teaches that God's word hasn't failed because of the sovereignty of God in salvation, chapter 10 teaches that God's word hasn't failed explained by the responsibility of man in salvation. Is where we see in chapter 10. We actually pick it up in 9, verse 30. And so, from these two chapters, we see both sides of the doctrine of salvation. And we've used this cone in some ways to to describe it. And and so, in in the series that we've come from, this chapter 9 of God's sovereignty in salvation, uh, we have seen salvation from God's perspective, much like we saw through chapter 8. But his relationship with Israel as his privileged people from his perspective. It is not uh, uh, by man who works nor wills, but based on God who has mercy. And we look at it from his perspective and we think that is not what salvation looks like to me. Because what salvation looks like to me, we see from chapter 10's perspective of man's responsibility. of our responsibility to, to hear the gospel, to be convicted by it, to realize that a fear of hell, a fear of living any longer separated from God, and to recognize I need to make a choice to obey the gospel, to repent of my separation, my, my desire to, to be separate from God to believe, to move forward in relationship with him, to obey, to be baptized, to be discipled. We see it all from our perspective. And that's what chapter 10 gives us. So the first series, just as a reminder, was becoming God's people, the mercy of the just and sovereign God, the idea of him throwing out that life ring to us. We didn't deserve it. It was on the mercy of God alone. That it's based. And we move forward into becoming God's people. Our responsibility to respond in total trust. And today we're giving 
as I like to do, an overview of this series based in Romans 10 for you. In some ways, for you to experience much of like what I do when I come across a chapter like Romans 10. And one of the things I like to do first is just because as I'm kind of milling about, I'll, I'll use an app like Faith Comes by Hearing or something like that and just play it on my phone over and over and over again. The first thing I'm like listening to, to be honest with you, I'm like, Lord, what am I going to get from this? But in studying it, in surveying it, in observing it, in reading it, in, in, in kind of dividing it up in things, one of the things I like to do is on my computer, I'll take, con- the, I'll take similar words throughout it and make them different colors. You know, and start to see how they're grouped up in different paragraphs and things and different subject matters are being covered in different ways. I come, what comes to light is there's a big message here. There's an important message here. Easily. As we read through Romans uh, 10, starting in Romans 9, verse 11... I want you to notice man's responsibility to respond to the gospel, to respond to God's commands, as illustrated in the case of Israel as God's people. And the church's responsibility to share the gospel. And the challenge that it is for the lost person to respond in repentant faith. So picking up in verse 30 of of chapter 9, we'll read through uh, chapter 10 here. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue God's righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might, may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, the, the, I'm sorry, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, we, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, quote, their voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, quote, I will make you jealous of the, those who are not a nation. With, those, with the foolish nation, I will make you angry, end quote. Then Isaiah so, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So in, in this, we are looking at, for all of chapter 10, what it means becoming God's people our responsibility to respond in total trust. Our key verse through chapter 10 is um, here in verse 9. And it's actually um, an explanation of verse 8 before it um, actually starts with because. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In, in so many ways, it is that simple. But yet such a challenge. Such a challenge. What does God expect of me? For unbelievers, he expects repentant faith, total trust in Christ's person and work for your salvation. For believers who, who live, have expressed and live in repentant faith, we are expected to share our faith. Those who don't know Christ can't know him without hearing the gospel. Our responsibility is total trust in Christ's person and work. Both before and after our salvation experience. In the time we have, I hope to draw out some implications and to make observations from chapter 9 here. And, and first, there are implications here. First, in, under man's responsibility, we have a responsibility to avoid pursuing salvation by works. We've looked at this in, in, uh, in our looking at Palm Sunday. And the verses say, what then shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As I mentioned, our desperate condition as unsaved people, as people who have not come to Christ as our Savior, is that we are drunk with sin. And that drunkenness makes us think, I can do anything. 
I can attain the righteousness of God. Surely God's going to bring his standard down a little bit so that I can get up some muster at some point in my life and jump over it and prove myself to him. We see that Israel made this mistake in verse 31. They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law because they were never, ever going to be able to. It was a mistake for them to pursue a relationship with God through their works, through even their good works. And the cause we see is that Verse 32, that they're not able to let go of their prideful attempts to earn God's favor. It says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but it is as if it were based on works. There's this ironic scenario that pops up several times in the Old Testament. And it's that of a builder. And, it, and it's possible that, that it's, it's the picture of the temple being built. And that's because the stones for the temple were hewn out in the quarry to their specific measurements. And then they were brought to the temple mount to build it. And it's different uh, times that the temple was built and rebuilt. But, but the story goes, is, or, or the scenario goes, that a cornerstone is cut from stone. And a cornerstone would have looked odd. It, it would have, as you would imagine, it would have been, had its cubic uh, nature to it, but then it would have had footings going out in both directions of the directions of the wall. So it would have been an odd-looking stone that would have been carved out and either you know, sent up to uh, where the thing was being built, or maybe it's a scenario of, of that someone comes and... and s- carves the cornerstone and sets the cornerstone and the builders kind of happen upon it, okay? And the scenario here is that God has set his cornerstone, but the builders come to build the building and they look at it and they're like, what in the world is this? And so they go on building the building like trying to ignore this cornerstone that was set by God. And so um, Peter makes the connection between the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling. That this cornerstone, as you would imagine, this, this huge thing, maybe even you know, carved out of bedrock is the picture here. It, it is, they, they want to ignore it, but they can't get rid of it. So as they're building this building, they're continually stumbling over this stone that God set, intending for them to build on it. And so that's, that's what is quoted in Romans 9, at the end of Romans 9. It's actually a combination of two statements from Isaiah, but one of those being from Isaiah twenty sixteen, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Apostle Peter, as I mentioned, combines the prophecy of Jesus being the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling that was also he's prophesied about in the Old Testament when he says in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. There we go. 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, he continues. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And Jesus speaks of himself during the week leading up to his death. He speaks of himself as the cornerstone in Mark 12, 10, where he says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the image there throughout the Old Testament was that God has a purpose for his relationship with Israel. He has a purpose for his law relationship with them. And it is a cornerstone that it is all supposed to be built on. And that cornerstone is the coming Messiah. But throughout their relationship with him, they intended, they continued to build their own quote-unquote relationship with God, not on that cornerstone that he had set. And by the time the cornerstone shows up in the person of Jesus Christ, they don't even recognize it. And as we know from our Easter season, they stumble over him and kill him. The good news of the gospel is that all that needs to be done is complete. All that remains is for us to trust in Christ for our salvation, God's cornerstone of our relationship with him. Yet people still remain unsaved. Why? I can tell you, unable to let go of works as a means of salvation, as the Jews refuse to do, is, is an example of stumbling over the grace of God through Jesus and Jesus alone. God's grace through works negates the ability to be saved. God's grace through faith plus works negates the ability to be saved. Only God's grace through faith results in achieving the righteousness of Christ for our sake. He will not hold that position when, if anything, we muster up. In my experience of working with teenagers, I actually had a father tell me one time. He said that he was afraid how his kids might choose to live if they should think that they are saved and secured by God's grace and not by their works. And so he refused to tell them that. And he refused to let them sit under that teaching. Making little legalists. Which in my opinion are very much in danger of hell. And out of a fear of hell. My concern for him is that he may be stumbling over the cornerstone of Jesus. Unable to reject salvation by works. Man also has a responsibility not just to reject salvation by works, but also to accept salvation by grace through faith. He continues, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The question I'd like to ask in this is, are we recognizing unbelievers' need for salvation? 
Are we recognizing their need for salvation? The Apostle Paul here is sharing his heart again. I love how he shares his heart leading into his chapter talking about God's sovereignty, defending God's word by explaining his sovereignty. And he shares his heart at the beginning of chapter 9. And he shares it again here, defending God's word and God's promises with the explanation of man's responsibility. Recall back at the beginning of verse of chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He wished that he would be accursed instead of them because In disbelieving in salvation through Christ, they were accursed. You might remember the message from that was, we need more grieving Christians. And the message today might as well be, we need more praying Christians. As his statement here, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I've said before, I think prayer is where the rubber meets the road of our doctrine. Especially here in the doctrine of salvation. And when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, whether you lean towards some guy named Calvin or some guy named Arminius, I think that the call to prayer for the lost to be saved should soften both camps. And I don't want to get into this too much, but on one camp it's saying God can move today. And this is not founded in something determined like fatalism. And on the other camp it's saying God can move in someone's heart and maybe even supersede their will and give them a desire for Him. That's what we're praying for. God invites us to come to him and lift up friends and neighbors and family members and even people, especially people you don't like. We're called to ask God to open their eyes, to wake the spiritually dead like the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision, to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh as Jeremiah prayed. If you were to join us as we pray for the loss that you have brought to our attention to pray for on Sunday mornings and as people come here and pray for them during the week, you will hear people ask God to shake their world, open their eyes. Today, let them see their need for you. And if your doctrine keeps you from praying for the lost to be saved, you need to correct your doctrine. second question I think that we beg to ask here is are they recognizing the need to be saved? Are unbelievers, those that, that have not bowed their knee in humble, repentant faith, are they recognizing their need to be saved? As in Israel's case, they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. 
and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. There's a challenge of self-righteousness here. We've talked about this, this zeal without knowledge, which could be called fanaticism. Not understanding the totally, holy, set-apart righteousness of God. Being ignorant of just how insurmountable and unreachable the righteousness of God is. That standard that he cannot fellowship with anybody that is not clothed in that sort of righteousness. The sort of righteousness that we only get through Christ. Christ's righteousness or self-righteousness is what is pitted against each other in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The lost need to hear these truths. We pray for these names on the wall because they are people that you have written down that you want them to come to know Christ, that you're looking for opportunities to share your faith with them. We are praying. We invite you to pray with us. Are you sharing? Are you looking for an open door to share? shared with you before, sometimes I can start with just asking three questions. Where do you think it all came from? What do you think is wrong with this world? How do you think it's fixed? Do you mind if I share what I think? Even the gospel acronym, you know, G, God created us to live with him. Oh, our sins separate us from God. S, sin cannot be paid for by good works. P, paying the price for sin. Jesus died and rose again. E, eternal life is available for anyone who believes. L, life that's eternal can start now and last forever. And I want to tell you, I, any of the shepherds, certainly I and Pastor Jeff, this is something that we would be happy and excited to equip you in personally. If there's somebody that's just like, I'm praying, I'm looking for an opportunity, What do I say when it comes? Let us equip you for that. We're praying. Are you sharing? You know, one of the uh, men I had the privilege to get to know in in, uh, Rapid City when we served there, his name is Ed Egbert. And he had the interesting experience of being a Minuteman missile launcher. And the Minutemen were guys that, that... lived down in the ground for 24 hours at a time. And down in the ground was a missile silo with a nuclear missile, a missile with a nuclear warhead. And these were scattered around South Dakota. And they were trained and they, and they lived in this capsule down underground. And the idea was that during the Cold War, if there was a strike against the United States, they were actually able to survive that was the theory that they were going to be survive this nuclear attack and they would be able to hit the button and send the response. And I couldn't imagine living under this, but he said, you know, every now and then when we were spending our 24 hours down there, they would go through a drill. And it was like, you know, get out of your bunk or stop whatever you're doing and go through. And there's two guys down there and they both have keys and they both, one puts his key in and one guy's down the 
desk and he puts his key in, both turn the key and they're both sitting and it'll be like, this was just a drill. I mean, but they lived and he said they, we wouldn't know at any given time that could be it. The world could be coming to an end basically. And, in, and, and I was just like, how did you live? I would have just been a nervous wreck. I would have been like, I almost pushed that button. I mean, there must have been some sort of something that kept them from launching. But, <clears throat> you know, to be turning that key back and putting it back around your neck and just be like, okay, you know, another game of pinochle. <laughs> the fact is, we should live with that expectancy. Because at some point, maybe even before we close this service, it's all going to be over. The opportunity for the lost to be saved is going to end. The opportunity to share with the lost is going to end. And I don't know about you, but there are people that I would be thinking, why didn't I just break the silence? Why didn't I just have that awkward conversation? Just give it a shot. Just to see if God's mercy was falling on this person. That they might be saved. Is it your heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they might be saved? You may need to correct your heart. Let me just overview the rest of chapter 10 here with the rest of our time together. It says, uh, we see in the rest of chapter 10, if you will, man's responsibility is so simple, yet so challenging. It's so simple, yet so challenging. And, and I just want to kind of wet your whistle a little bit. Maybe answer that question that you have, start to answer it of, what are we going to get from the rest of this chapter? You know, uh, who will who will bring Christ? You know who will say I will ascend? That is to bring Christ down. You know. First, we're going to see the simplicity of the gospel. How simple it is that the gospel would resonate with a person. We're told from cha- verse eight. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the worth of fa- the word of faith that we proclaim. It's so simple how it resonates with someone. And the simplicity of God's availability to every person, every type of person. In verses 11 through 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no type of person on the face of this earth that is not eligible for salvation just as they are. It's that simple. Yet we'll see the challenge of getting the gospel out. The question's asked, how then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's a challenge of getting the gospel out. And if they don't hear it, they can't believe. We'll also see the challenge of disobedient hearts. As it's, as it's talked about in these quotes from, from Isaiah and from, from Moses. And I'll read all of verses 16 through 21 where it says, But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For as the quote says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And the, and the idea is, yes, they did. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. But then, I, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. This is God speaking. So in other words, I can be found. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of, of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Israel is a picture to us of how your entire history, your entire existence can be because of the goodness and grace of God, of a totally righteous and holy God that your every sacrifice that you make to Him should be screaming to you, I cannot meet this righteousness on my own. And yet they can be a disobedient and contrary person. It shows us the challenge of a disobedient, sinful heart that we're all born with. There will continue to be a lot of discussion in this chapter, as you've seen, of Israel and the defense of God's covenant love and of their refusing His covenant love. Today, we've just overviewed the rest of this chapter with the simplicity and the challenge of belief. You've probably thought about that person that you, you just want so bad that they would believe the gospel. Why is it as hard for them? It's so simple. And this chapter brings to light some of the answers, I think. But we'll also see how we as Christians are responsible to respond to God's grace. And he doesn't take it lightly when we don't. I think there's implications for Christians who make excuses for our disobedience. You know, I'm just not feeling like sharing. I'm just not feeling that close to God. You know, maybe if, if, if I felt closer to God, I, I'd be able to, to do what I know He's told me to do here. You know, whatever that is. Whatever it is you're dealing with. I know what the Bible says about what I'm doing, but I know I should obey God in this area, but my circumstances keep me from being able to. I think this chapter will unveil God's thoughts about these issues for us as, for believers, as believers as well. 
And take this away from what we've read so far. God doesn't accept our excuses. Picture him. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We know. We understand. So in case you think this is going to be all about Israel, no, it's about us too. As the privileged people of God. Let's bow our heads. Lord, it is a privilege to be your people. Purchased by your son. To be the church of God. Built on the cornerstone of Christ. With him as our foundation. Lord, I pray that you would quicken our hearts. To be true to your gospel. To be true to the fact that. That. People must hear it. People must believe it and bow the knee in order to be saved. And you want us to be a part of what you're doing. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.